This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. From The Recount, I'm Kimberly Gavant, filling in for Rena Nainen, and you're listening to The Recount Daily Pod. Today is Thursday, October 14th. As a representative of young America, it introduced them to powerful people. It gave them career opportunities and ambitions they might not have had otherwise. That was Amy Argetsinger, editor and staff writer at The Washington Post and author of There She Was, The Secret History of Miss America. Rena Nainen digs into that with Amy a little later on. But first, your morning headlines. We begin in the port of Los Angeles, where 27 container ships are floating just offshore, waiting to dock and be offloaded. Backups at U.S. ports, factories, and supply lanes are just some of the factors clogging up the entire global supply chain, causing higher prices here and around the world. In an effort to relieve the bottleneck, President Joe Biden announced that starting today, the port of Los Angeles will begin operating around the clock. He added that his administration is also encouraging states to accelerate their truck driver licensing process to get more trucks on the road moving goods. In an effort to ease the global gridlock, UPS, Walmart, and FedEx all announced they will make their operations 24-7 for the next few weeks. The Labor Department added to Biden's woes, announcing that the Consumer Price Index, a key reading of monthly inflation, jumped 5.4 percent in September in comparison to 2020. As if that wasn't enough, there's also an upcoming holiday shopping season to worry about. With pain in the pocketbook and in Biden's approval ratings, pressure to provide solutions to supply chain issues is building. The president ended his speech with a plea for American companies to step up and start making more products here. Next to the Food and Drug Administration, 
which is now urging manufacturers to make your meals a little less salty. Due to a growing epidemic of cardiovascular disease and hypertension, the FDA now wants to cut down the nation's average sodium consumption by 12% over the next two and a half years. Americans, on average, consume nearly 3,400 milligrams of sodium per day. That's a thousand more than the recommended amount. Nearly 70% of the sodium currently consumed comes from packaged, processed, and restaurant foods. The FDA is advising food producers to reduce sodium levels gradually to allow time to reformulate recipes as consumers adjust to the change in flavor. They also asked the food industry not to offset the lower sodium levels with more sugar or saturated fats. We end in Washington, D.C., where the Biden administration announced a plan to develop large-scale wind farms along the entire U.S. coastline, east and west. Interior Secretary Deb Holland said her agency will formally begin the process of identifying federal waters that could be leased to wind developers as soon as 2025. This comes just months after the approval of the nation's first commercial wind farm off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. The push to develop offshore wind farms is just one part of Biden's ambitious plan to cut the nation's fossil fuel emissions in half by 2030. For those of you beach lovers who are less than thrilled with the news, know that there are plenty of hurdles to the approval process. First, these projects are subjected to lengthy federal, state, and local reviews before any leases are granted, weighing factors like harm to endangered species or to local industries such as fishing and tourism. Second, there's also a public forum period when people impacted can weigh in with their issues and concerns. But be forewarned, NIMBY arguments, also known as not in my backyard, are historically not very persuasive in blocking government projects. And now to our daily deep dive. The storied Miss America pageant turned 100 this year. The iconic institution crowned many women who ended up later breaking glass ceilings throughout American society. But the pageant was not without its controversy, including the judgment of women based on their appearance. So is Miss America still relevant? Today, we're talking to Amy Argetsinger, editor and staff writer for the Washington Post style section and author of There She Was, The Secret History of Miss America. Hey, Amy, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Wow, 100 years. First off, how did this pageant even begin? Who founded it? You know, it started off very inauspiciously. It was basically a tourist trap. This was a little sideshow to the big fall frolic festival that the business owners of Atlantic City set up essentially to extend the summer season past Labor Day. It was you know, a big party, everyone in swimwear, lots of dances and contests, and part of the publicity involved a little beauty contest. They invited newspapers from towns within driving distance to pick their most beautiful girls and send them to Atlantic City. There are nine of them in all in competition, and somehow this appealed to people on such a basic level that it overshadowed the rest of this festival and continued on for decades to come. So what's changed in the 100 years? There have been other beauty pageants here and there. This one, though, was being hosted by a small town where a very business-minded community, even though it was a lively place, it was basically run by good church people. And Miss America had to attain a certain level of respectability 
in order to survive. At one point in the 1930s, the business owners just shut it down because they thought it was becoming too tacky, all of these publicity-seeking women. And so that's when they started adding talent competitions so it wouldn't just be a beauty thing. Eventually, they added scholarships, which the organizers thought of as a way to attract the right kind of young woman, the right class of young women, eventually, you know, taking on good causes, selling war bonds. And that's where Miss America was different from other beauty contests. It was always striving for a certain level of respectability. It always wanted to be more. Uh, it went on television in 1954 immediately became a big hit that lasted for, for several decades. The swimsuit competition, of course, was always one of the more popular elements of it, one of the defining elements. They finally got rid of that in 2018, and it's been a search for its identity ever since. So, Amy, for two years, you visited pageants, you interviewed former winners and contestants to try to get a window in this hidden world, this iconic institution. What did you hear? What did you find out? I found that a lot of women had conflicted viewpoints on this. Many of them still felt like this was a capstone of their life, something that really defined them. It had taken them out of small towns. It had launched them to this level of visibility where they were being perceived, at least by the media or by this organization, as a representative of young America. It introduced them to powerful people. It gave them career opportunities and ambitions they might not have had otherwise. Some of them were also conflicted. They were conflicted about having competed in something where they had been walking across the stage in a swimsuit. For the most part, though, they remained deeply invested in this organization and wanted to see it thrive because it had been something that had done so much to define them. So, Amy, in your book, There She Was, you say you love the Miss America pageant and you're not going to apologize for it. What are the criticisms that sort of still remain about the pageant and how do you respond to them? That would be asking me to apologize for liking it or apologizing for it. It's hard to apologize for Miss America. I mean, it is an old-fashioned thing. Uh, I think I first started going to it with friends, and you think you're going to go to laugh at it. It is this bizarre ritual. What does it even mean? However, once you start watching it, it becomes a spectator sport. It is a competition. It's like going to the Kentucky Derby. And you cannot help yourself but try to think, okay, who's going to be the winner? Can I pick the winner? And what kept us coming back for years was trying to figure out how to predict who was going to win. Because it seemed to stand for something. It seemed like there had to be some kind of formula. What was it that they were trying to measure here? Was it who's best looking? Was it who's the best speaker? Was it who is the most accomplished or most talented? And most of the times it clearly wasn't anything like that. So you get drawn in trying to think, well, what is this? What is this that they are trying to reward anyway? The best I could figure is that it was some kind of contest of charisma. And to be honest, I think we all play that game a lot, even if it's not Miss America. I think that's what we're doing with presidential politics a lot of the time. You like to think that it's a more elevated thing, that you're trying to pick someone on the basis of talent or the ability to do their job. But at the end of the day, we're all drawn to charisma. And to try to figure out what that means is a deeply appealing exercise. This is like real reality TV back before there was reality TV. 
Absolutely. It was an immediate hit. It was a hit because it was so live and so fresh. You know, it's funny, they didn't even talk about the swimsuits. Obviously, yeah, there were girls walking across the stage in swimsuits, and that had to have been part of the appeal for TV audiences. But what really captivated people that first year was the young woman who was crowned, Lee Merriweather. She burst into tears. She looked to the heavens and evoked her late father. And she cried, and across the country, viewers were captivated by this because it was so real that they were seeing a young woman being elevated to fame overnight it was deeply appealing. And it's the same itch we scratched years later, starting in the 2000s, when reality TV became so appealing. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Amy Argetsinger, author of There She Was, The Secret History of Miss America on The Recount Daily Pod. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome back to The Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm here with Amy Argetsinger, editor and staff writer for The Washington Post Style section and author of There She Was, The Secret History of Miss America. I want to talk about some of the women who have been crowned. For instance, Phyllis George, Miss America 1971. She was the first woman to co-host the Super Bowl, one of the first women to hold an on-air position in national televised sports broadcasting. Do you think Miss America really helped her achieve that success in broadcasting? In a way, it did. It got her out of Denton, Texas, and it fed her ambitions. I talked to Phyllis a lot. Phyllis passed away early last year. She, of course, had always been very bright and personable, and that's why she surged to the top. That's why she won Miss America. But I think the key thing is that all of a sudden, that exposed her to a different world, and it made her realize 
these ambitions that she might not have ever realized if she had stayed in Denton, Texas. The funny thing about Phyllis is that she didn't have a natural lane to go into. She wasn't a singer. She wasn't an actress. She just had this ambition. She wanted to do more. She wanted to continue to be on television. And it was kind of an amazing convergence of events that she met the head of CBS Sports right at a time when he was concerned about the ratings, when he was wanting to branch out and try to find a way to include women into sports programming. And she hadn't thought about it before. She gave it a try and it was absolutely a huge hit. And it it changed broadcasting. I mean, it changed her career, of course, but it changed broadcasting in that sports no longer had to be three guys and blazers litigating a game to death. All of a sudden, they opened up to sort of softer side, uh, behind the scenes with athletes, which was the kind of thing Phyllis excelled at. And I've talked to other women in sports who say that what she did, it normalized women in sports. It normalized women in broadcasting at a time where you didn't really even have very many women in local news, let alone sports. You know, one of the things growing up, and this was always something we watched, but as a South Asian woman, it's such an interesting dynamic because you didn't see South Asian women for sure. In fact, another Miss America winner, Vanessa Williams, she was the first black woman to win. That didn't happen until 1983. And then a year later, she had to give up the crown because of these nude photos that surfaced. Also, making history by being the first person to resign for having been crowned Miss America. How has the world of Miss America pageants treated Black women and people of color? You know, for the longest time, race was a non-issue because Black people, women of color, were completely excluded, as they were from so many quadrants of society. Uh, In fact, there was a rule on the books. They called it Rule 7, which stated that all the contestants had to be women of good health and of the white race. And this wow, written, that was actually in the rules? It was actually in the rules. They sometimes made exceptions. There are some women of Asian descent who were contestants in the 1940s. Uh, but the director of the Miss America program made it clear at the time, she said, oh, yes, that rule is really just supposed to keep Black women out. She was very explicit about it. She said, Negro beauty cannot be compared with white beauty. Uh, it was a very overtly exclusionary practice. But, you know, of course, even when they got rid of the rule in the 1950s, the system was was just not set up to welcome women of color. It was 1959 before any women of color won local pageants. And this is because these small town pageants were invitation only, and they were not inviting women of color. It's extraordinary how long it took uh, until 1983 uh, before Vanessa broke through in this way. And I can tell you, it was huge news. This was considered on par with Jackie Robinson integrating Major League Baseball, if you can believe that. Mm, I can believe that. It's really incredible. Talk to me a little bit about how the barriers still exist and how has this sort of affected the larger Miss America franchise? It's been a constant conversation about whether it's welcoming enough, whether it is representative enough. Though a lot of the awareness about diversity and getting rid of exclusionary practices, a lot of that came up, I would say, almost too late for Miss America because it came up at a time when the numbers of women who were growing up wanting to be Miss America, who were growing up entering pageants, they were already beginning to drift away. And nine African-American women have since been crowned. There's been an Asian winner, an Indian American winner. But at, at that point, it was hard to argue that Miss America meant as much in society as a role model, as an aspirational thing anymore. 
Amy, how do you think the women's liberation movement affected the world of pageants and vice versa? You know, it's interesting. In 1968, a fledgling organization called New York Radical Women hosted their first big protest, their first big media event of any kind outside the doors of the 1968 Miss America pageant. And it put them on the map. They came there to protest the entire system as objectifying women, treating women like livestock, forcing them to conform to certain beauty standards. It was a very splashy protest. They had a trash can in which they were throwing bras and girdles and women's magazines. It stole all the headlines from the Miss America pageant that year. And it really shook the pageant in many ways. Uh, And of course, it really helped put the women's movement on the map. They quickly moved on to bigger issues, of course. But the Miss America organization was struggling with this for many years and thinking, is a swimsuit competition inappropriate? Are we treating women well? It was still a very conservative organization, though, and not very welcoming of the women's movement. So what you saw happen was this kind of change along the margins, where the pageant world changed because young women coming up in society were changing. And starting in the 70s, you saw these very interesting young women who were obviously enjoying the rewards of the feminist movement, who were in some ways advancing the feminist cause, but they didn't consider themselves feminists. Hmm. So Amy, my understanding is that the ratings have been declining year after year. What do you think the future of the Miss America pageant looks like? And is Miss America still relevant? It's funny that we ask if Miss America is still relevant. No one asks if The Bachelor is still relevant. You just ask, how are the ratings? Are people still watching? But because Miss America always strived to represent this ideal, and in a certain way, even the cynics among us kind of bought into that, we always frame it in a loftier sense. Is it still relevant? I'm here to say at the end of the day, the thing that kept it afloat, the thing that kept it alive, the thing that made it a brand, was television. And that's gone. I started off this book trying to map what happened, what went wrong, why is the Miss America pageant dying? Because indeed, you know, it used to have 80 million viewers. With the most recent pageant, they had maybe 3 million viewers. It's really fallen off the radar in so many ways. And so when I tried to figure out what had gone wrong, I kept being surprised to realize that Miss America had a pretty good run. It's a relic of the 1920s that managed to catch on in 1950s television. It's a small miracle that it made it from the 1950s to the 1970s, let alone the 1990s. I'd say in the past 20 years, it has simply been unable to keep up with the more sophisticated, dynamic offerings of reality TV. And we've continued to have this debate about whether it's appropriate for young women to be competing for scholarships and swimsuits at a time when there's much raunchier stuff going on other reality TV. I would have to say it doesn't have much of a future. So much of its mystique, so much of its finances really did come from being a hit TV show. Tastes have changed. The book is called There She Was, The Secret History of Miss America. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And now to the look ahead. Here's what else we're watching today. The Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee meets this morning to discuss authorizing a booster shot for Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. The same committee will reconvene tomorrow morning for a similar meeting regarding the J&J booster. Right now, it's unclear if either company will get the authorization. 
Earlier this week, the FDA said Moderna did not meet all of the necessary criteria because the efficacy of its two-dose regimen remains so high. In other words, the booster didn't give much of a boost. J&J's shot may be even less likely to get authorized based on a new federal study that found that those who received the first J&J shot are better off with a booster from Moderna or Pfizer. Next, to Hollywood, which could be ground zero for one of the largest coordinated strikes in the history of show business. Film and television crews are demanding better pay as well as adequate rest and meal periods. Amid negotiations with studio reps, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees is threatening to walk if a deal isn't struck by Sunday at midnight. As many as 60,000 crew workers could be out of a job, halting production on sets in both the U.S. and abroad. Last but not least, we go to London, where the shredded Banksy painting is somehow back, and once again, it's up at auction. That's right, the painting that partially self-destructed immediately after it was purchased in 2018 is returning today to the same Sotheby's auction block. And get this, it's worth even more. The image of the little girl and her red balloon originally went for $1.4 million. Three years later, the piece is expected to fetch somewhere between five and eight million dollars. We'll see if Banksy has another trick in store for us this time round. Have a great day. This is the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Amy Argetsinger, editor and staff writer at The Washington Post and author of There She Was, The Secret History of Miss America, for being on the show. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the Recount Daily Pod and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Filling in for Rena Ninen, I'm Kimberly Gavant. Alexis Ramdow and Corey Wara engineered and produced this podcast. Ariella Martin also produced. Fonda Mwangi did the research. Pierre Benname is our senior producer, and our executive producer is Laura Beatty. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.